Hi, welcome back to the virtual sponsorship series. Today's video will be on the second half of chapter two, There's a Solution. We're going to pick up where we left off on page 23. If you haven't seen the previous video, check that out now. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. How true this is, few realize. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. So in this paragraph, they're referring to the excuses that we make for our drinking. Sometimes we have semi-plausible excuses, mostly due to some sort of stressful situation or ill fortune that has befallen us. Um, we very often play the victim card. But in light of all the trouble that the drinking causes us towards the end, none of these excuses can really make sense. And so deep down, we have this feeling that we are kind of just helpless. This is also the first time they use the word malady in the book. So in the previous chapters, we've talked about the physical allergy and the mental obsession. Now, on top of those two things, the book also refers to a spiritual malady. So this disease is affecting us mind, body, and spirit. And we will break that down more in some of the later text. And then they go on to talk about the great obsession of every alcoholic drinker out there. The obsession that maybe, just somehow, we can find a way to drink without having to endure the consequences that follow. Now, if I'm being 100% honest, if I could drink without consequences, I probably would still be drinking. Unfortunately, that is just not a possibility for somebody like me. And then early on in our drinking careers, there are signs that we are abnormal drinkers and people may say something to us, but after giving them some semi-plausible excuse, they usually back off because they think that maybe one day you'll grow out of it and you're just going through a phase. But after years and years of the same cycle, people start to lose hope in your ability to maintain sobriety. The tragic truth is that if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. And so this is a really great feature of our alcoholism. 
uh, a great way to describe it to somebody who may be questioning whether or not they have a problem with alcohol is we drink against our will no matter how badly we wish to stop no matter what is on the line we we drink and then to reiterate a point that we made in the last video we cross the point of no return we cross this invisible line where we can no longer stop drinking even if we desire to with all our heart long before it's suspected so we're still having fun when we cross this invisible line and have no desire to stop whatsoever and then by the time things get bad it's too late the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice and drink our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent we are able at unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago we are without defense against the first drink so a little history here the italics that are used in this paragraph signify that this is a very important point that they're trying to make Back when this book was being published originally, it was very expensive to italicize the text. And so the fact that they were willing to pay for this, this to be italicized means that it was very important for them to stress this point. And this paragraph is a great way to describe the insanity that they're talking about in step two. Step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The insanity that they're referring to is not the insane things that we do when we're drunk or high. It's the insanity of the first drink. It's this, this inability to bring to mind with sufficient force the suffering that alcohol causes us every time. Oftentimes in AA, you will hear people say, I got a built-in forgetter. Sanity is often defined as wholeness of mind. And when our sanity is restored and we have this wholeness of mind, we are able to relatively easily remember this suffering. In my life, this insanity goes much further than just forgetting about the suffering that alcohol calls me, caused me. Oftentimes I forget how much of an asshole that I can be sometimes. And I get this ego and I think that I know better. Although my experiences have shown me time and time again that that is not the case. We are without a defense against the first drink. This point cannot be stressed enough. When you go through a detox in a, in a treatment center and you come out on the other side, it is so easy to slip into the mind state that now that you're not drinking, you're doing just fine. But we are without a defense. And if we go for long enough, eventually we will drink. 
It is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Pain is there for a reason. When we put our hand on a hot stove and it burns us, we very quickly learn not to put our hand there again. If human beings did not experience pain, then theoretically we could go out and just do something that could harm or maim or kill us without even realizing it. So it's an indicator that, hey, something's wrong. You need to change. It's very easy to see how this is applicable when it comes to physical pain. However, people fail to make the connection with emotional and spiritual pain. The misery, the despair, the doom that we feel in the depths of our drinking, we think is just the conditions of our lives and we feel the victim. Never once do we think, hey, maybe I'm bringing this on myself by the way that I'm acting. It's a hard pill to swallow, taking accountability for your own suffering, made even harder by the fact that even if you were to take accountability for your suffering, by no means does that mean you'll be able to avoid it permanently. But in my experience, until one starts to take accountability for their actions and the misery that it brings upon them, then there is no motivation to change whatsoever. And if you have no humility and no motivation to change, then your ideas are fixed and you're not open to any kind of solution. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often has some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid, and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. Anybody who's attempted a geographical cure should be able to relate to this first paragraph. That is one of the first ways that we attempt to either control or stop our drinking on our own along with getting out of certain relationships cutting out certain friends switching jobs you can add to this list over and over we do all sorts of experiment to see how we can be the exception to the rule and find our own way to control or stop our drinking
And then after a period of sobriety, when we do have that first slip, we oftentimes will say to ourselves, well, I fucked up, but might as well get it in while I can. Why accept the consequences if we don't at least get something out of it? And, and then it goes on to say like once that type of thinking is established, we are most likely beyond human aid. Now human aid would be treatment centers, therapy, uh, retreats, anything that another human could potentially do for you to help you stop your drinking. In a few paragraphs, we're going to go over a great example of somebody who went to extreme measures to seek the best human aid possible. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for its sex successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When therefore we are approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence, of which we had not even dreamed. So it says right here that most of us don't come in to be virtuous. Uh, we come in to save our ass. We don't really like the idea of doing a fourth and a fifth step, but we do it because we have to, and we do it begrudgingly. And, and for me, this is very important because if, if somebody comes in and they think that they need to have the, uh, a certain attitude or if they need to have faith to begin the journey, then they're probably going to write it off as not possible for them. I know when I came in, I didn't have faith and I didn't have a good attitude either. And I did this stuff begrudgingly because I knew that I had to. Um, I never expected it to rocket me into the fourth dimension, but it did. And I'm at pains to really describe what that means. I've had sponsees ask me what the heck they're talking about there. Um, and it's like anybody who's had a spiritual experience with the 12 steps knows what they're talking about, but it's very hard to put into words. The best I can do is... There is such an internal change brought upon by the steps that without the outside world having to change very much, a new world snaps into view. One that is beautiful, has meaning and purpose, and we are at peace. We can trust in the fact that things happen for a reason and it makes life much more easygoing for us. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. 
So in this paragraph, they're saying that this fourth dimension is the spiritual experience. It's coming into contact with the creator. And then there's the asterisk, which says to refer to Appendix 2, where spiritual experience is fully explained. The Appendix 2 reads, The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God Consciousness. Most empathetically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honesty, facing his problems in the light of our experience, can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. So that appendix uses the word change and other synonyms nine times. And we are going to go into depth with this spiritual experience as we go through the book. But to put it simply, a spiritual experience is something outside of you that happens that changes everything. It changes your perception of the world, it changes your heart, and it changes your mind. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, 
blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. So there's some important points that they're making here. One is there's no middle of the road solution. One thing you'll hear in AA a lot is you're either uh, working towards your recovery or working towards your relapse. There is no neutrality. You cannot stay sober on yesterday's work. Therefore, you must earn your daily reprieve by practicing these principles on a daily basis. And then it goes on to refer that if we have passed into the region in, in which there's no re, uh, return through human aid, which a couple paragraphs ago, we have already established that if you had that experience where you were trying to be sober and after a period of abstinence, you slipped up and thought to yourself, oh, might as well get it in while the getting's good then you've probably already passed into that region, then you need to either A, go on to the bitter end, blotting out your miserable existence the best you could, or accept spiritual help. Now, this decision is very difficult if you are an alcoholic. If you were to ask somebody that's not alcoholic to make a decision between those two things, it would be blatantly obvious what, what decision these should make. But a real alcoholic's going to want more details than that. They're going to want to know how well can we blot it out? How bitter is it going to be? What is the spiritual help they're talking about anyway? In my case, that decision was taken away from me. No matter how much I drank or no matter how much I drug, I got to a point where I could no longer blot out my miserable existence. And so I was left with only two options. I could either kill myself or try to accept the spiritual help for once. And even that was kind of a difficult decision, but I figured I might as well at least give it a good try before I end it all. And so if alcohol could still blot out all my problems and all my misery, I would probably still be out there blotting it out, but it is just not so. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrists. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Young, who prescribed for him. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to this doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems. Yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? 
He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was a great physician's opinion. So earlier I said that we were going to go over an example, a good example of seeking human aid. So the man that they're talking about in this paragraph is a man named Roland Hazard. So Roland Hazard goes all over the country looking for the best possible psychiatrist seeking human aid to relieve him of his alcoholism. Nobody's able to help him. Then he goes to Europe to see Dr. Carl Jung. Dr. Carl Jung is a Swedish psychiatrist and he is arguably one of the greatest minds in psychiatry even to this day. If you were to go to college and take a course in psychology, you would probably still learn about the works of Carl Jung decades after he has passed away. So I think it's safe to say that this is arguably one of the best forms of human aid money could buy. And yet it did absolutely nothing for helping him with his alcoholism. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with the clang. So despite the opinion of the great Dr. Young, this man was able to get sober, provided that he maintains the attitude that was brought about by working the 12 steps. Then the doctor does something great. He gives him the hard, honest truth and says, you're doomed. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. So then Dr. Young really puts Roland Hazard on the right path here. He can't tell him how to do it, but he tells him that the key to his success would be to have what is called a spiritual experience. To him, these are phenomena, the equivalent of ghosts. And then he goes on to explain it in a very scientific way. But then admits that although he understands 
the psychological change that comes about as a result of these spiritual experiences, he does not have the power within him to give him one himself. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he reflected that, after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case they did not spell the necessity vital spiritual experience. Here was a terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience which we have already told you made him a free man. So this is another important point here as well. Going to church does not necessarily spell out spiritual experience. Some people, when they get try to get sober, think that they can do without AA and could substitute going to church. Although going to church would definitely not hurt somebody's recovery, I find that it's in most cases not enough. So often people that are members of religious groups accept a set of beliefs, but that is not enough for the alcoholic. With the alcoholic, we need a program of action in order to be able to maintain our sobriety. Furthermore, the advice one might receive from other church members who are not alcoholic may not be appropriate for the subtle insanity that exists within an alcoholic's mind. Without the like-minded people around you that suffer from the same issue, it would be very hard to get advice relating directly to your alcoholism. We in our turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or, if you prefer, a design for living that really works. The distinguished American psychologist William James, in his book Varieties of Religious Experience, indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Those having religious affiliations will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. And so just as this paragraph suggests, Roland Hazard seeks his escape with the desperation of a dying man. He starts to go out and seek out something that could possibly give him a spiritual experience. He then finds the Oxford group. The Oxford group is a religious Christian-based group that had a program of action in a, in a and a number of spiritual principles that they applied in their life that mimicked the 12 steps of AA before AA and the 12 steps even existed. After becoming a member, Roland Hazard had the vital spiritual experience that he was looking for and became sober. While he was sober in the Oxford group, 
he started to try to help other alcoholics recover. It was there that he met Ebby Thatcher. Roland, Roland Hazard sponsored Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher got a spiritual experience and got sober as a result of that. And then he showed up at Bill Wilson's house to get him sober. Thus, AA was born. Pretty interesting. Carl Jung can be found deep within the roots of AA. We think it no concern of ours what religious bodies our members identify themselves with as individuals. This should be an entirely personal affair which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. None, all, not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. In the following chapter there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it, then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Many who once were in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to spiritual experience. And this is one of the beauties of AA. It's open to all forms of belief, all forms of religion. We do not exclude anybody, and there's nothing in the 12 steps that would go against any religious practice. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. These give a fair cross-section of our membership and clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages and we believe that it is only by full disclo fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. So we've outlined a lot of the, of the problem and a lot of the solution already. And the next chapter, more about alcoholism, we're gonna dive a little bit deeper into the nuances of the problem followed by we agnostics which is really going to start to get into the solution and the, the the stuff that blocks us and makes us prejudiced towards spiritual concepts i hope you enjoyed this video and join me next time for chapter three there's more about alcoholism god bless see you next time